Well, good morning. Welcome to Springbrook. We're glad you're here for Labor Day weekend. Everybody get, who gets Monday off? Anybody get Monday off? Yeah, Monday off is nice. Anybody have to work Monday? I don't know. Monday is my only day off during the week, so I get it off anyway, so no big deal. Well, we're continuing our series uh, through 1 Corinthians. We're looking at the issue of unity uh, within the body of Christ. And so it's been a I've really enjoyed our series so far. Today we're going to be looking at unity in the body of Christ as it relates um, to the issue of communion. And it's been fun this past week. I've, I've got this image in my mind uh, that I have not been able to get rid of as it relates to communion. It involves my kids. Um, when they were younger, they loved chicken nuggets. And so uh, we'd always go out for chicken nuggets. We'd try to find them someplace to get healthy chicken nuggets. And so, uh, but yeah, so they grew up liking those. And I remember we were at my wife's mom's house, mom and dad's house. And uh, they have a farm. It's not really a farm, but kind of. They have a big, uh, big garden. They had, they had uh, some cattle and some goats and some chickens. And so it was a nice little farm. But anyway, I was, remember I was feeding the chickens with the kids once. And uh, they're throwing the feed out there. And I'm looking around. I was like, Look at all those chicken nuggets running around out there. And uh, one of the kids like, stopped. and was like, well, you know, that's where your chicken nuggets come from. You knew that, right? And they, they didn't. And so they just kind of stood there. <laughs> I said, go talk to your mom. <laughs> like, oops, I let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> no, but think about the last time you went out to eat. You know, maybe uh, you like a good steak. Uh, maybe you like a big piece of ham with your eggs. Or It's amazing how many different ways you can cook chicken. And so, But when was the last time you ordered food? Unless you're a vegan, you really didn't think about it. When was the last time you thought about the process that, they went through to make the meat, right? And we don't think about that. You know, we, we want it nice and clean. In fact, if I don't have to think about that at all, that's perfect. And thanks for not making me think about it this morning. But, you know, we sit down, we sit down to eat, and we take these things for granted. There's a process that animals go through, you know, in food preparation. We typically don't think about the process because you know, that's not something we want to concern ourselves with. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the fact that we are a part of the body of Christ, And so we are something when we come together. And so uh, we're going to come together as the body of Christ, and we're going to be celebrating communion together, uh, which is also the body of Christ. And so we're going to be talking a lot about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And so when we come together as the church to participate in communion, it should raise two questions. First of all, why are we here? What does it mean to be a part of the body of Christ? And then with regard to communion, I think one of the questions that comes up is, is, why do we celebrate communion the way that we do? You know, when we think about communion, we get the little wafer, and sometimes we pass the communion plate around, and, and you hold that wafer up, and you hold that cup up, and it's, it's nice and neat, and it's clean. It's not messy at all. And uh, we typically will pass the tray down the aisle, and so everybody picks up their little communion tray, and we hold those things. And, um, you know, we reflect on who we are in Christ, but we very rarely will think about the process. You know, what is communion all about? What did Jesus go through to get us to where we are today as the body of Christ to celebrate communion. You know, we typically don't stop and reflect on the crucifixion. We don't reflect on the torture. Uh, we don't reflect on the pain. We don't reflect on the anguish. It's really easy for us when we're participating in communion not to think about the process of what God was doing when he called us into a relationship with himself and restored us you know, through Christ. You know, our church in some ways can be a lot like eating chicken nuggets too. You know, some people walk into the church, they have no idea what church is about. I mean, if you're here this morning and 
you're not quite sure what church is all about, we're glad you're here. So hopefully we'll help you to understand what it means to be a part of the body of Christ this morning. I think a lot of times for people, they think of church on Sunday morning, they think of music, so there's good music. And so it's not about entertainment, though, but it's about worshiping God, right? But we can reduce Sunday mornings even to the chicken nugget kind of mentality. You know, just feed me and get me out of here. We think about the fact that it's maybe it's just about entertaining music or a good message. I want to feel good. And so we don't typically talk about, you know, what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. I think a lot of times people, they're in shock when they find out it's not just about feeling good. <laughs> you know, the body of Christ is an opportunity for us to come together in the context of relationships to sharpen one another and to grow. You see, to be a part of the body of Christ means that there's relationship intentionality. We're intentional about making time for one another. We're intentional about relationships, and we're focused on life change. And that's a process. And sometimes we don't stop to think about the process. You know, we're called to be in loving relationships with one another as a part of the body of Christ. And we come together this morning to celebrate communion and to partake in the body of Christ. And so it's all about the body of Christ. It's important that we understand what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. You know, the church is not a building. You know, this is a ministry center for us, and so we have presence in the community. But we together are the church. So what makes up the church is the group of individuals that have come together because of the relationship with Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, he says, You are the body of Christ, speaking to you and to me and to all those that call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are the church, and we gather together to worship and to celebrate that calling. And that's what communion is all about this morning. We are going to be celebrating who we are in Christ. But the body of Christ is made up of individual members. And so when we get together and we're committed to one another in the context of relationships to be a part of what God has for us as the body of Christ, we are the church. And so we are the body of Christ coming together. But this morning we're also going to be participating and we're going to be eating the body of Christ through communion. You see, Paul says this in, in the next verse. In the, in the book of Luke, actually, um, when Jesus is speaking to the disciples, he gets the disciples together and he says, look, he takes the bread and when he breaks it, he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Whenever you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. And so when we pay, take of communion together, when we're eating the bread and drinking the cup, we are participating in communion. It's the body of Christ. And so we also refer to communion as the body of Christ. Now, in some churches, and we're not going to go into some of the differences between whether churches believe, and so there's a variety of beliefs out there. Some churches believe that in the communion service, that, that, the, uh, that the person that's overseeing the communion has the authority to actually change that bread and that cup into the physical flesh and the blood of Jesus. And so there are some people that believe that that actually is a piece of flesh after we get done with it, and that's really blood. And then by participating it, it's a sacrament that God's grace has imparted to us, and that's part of the ways of how we get to heaven. And so there's some churches that will, will teach that that's actually physically the body and the blood of Christ. And we call that transubstantiation. That means that the, the bread and the cup are actually physically changed into something different. And then in some churches, they teach uh, co-substantiation, which is about the fact that it's bread and it's a cup, and the, but it's also the body and blood. And so it kind of co-mingles. It's, it's, it's co-substantiation. It's got two parts to it. Well, Springbrook, when we partake of the body and the blood of Christ, when we talk about communion and we're taking the bread and we're taking the cup, we do this in remembrance of me. And so there's nothing magical that happens at communion. It's all about what God's doing in the life of a person when we come together to celebrate as believers 
what communion is. And we give thanks and we remember what Christ has accomplished for us. And so we're going to participate in communion this morning, and we're going to be partaking of the body of Christ. And so the body of Christ is really important, and we want to make sure that we're clear about what it is that Paul's talking about in our passages this morning. The purpose of the church and the importance of communication and the importance of making sure that people understand what they're doing and the importance of making sure that they understand what communion is, that's important. And you would have thought, you know, 2,000 years ago that they would have uh, gotten it right, that they wouldn't be confused about it. I mean, Jesus had not been gone with them for that much longer. You'd think 2,000 years ago that the church would understand better what communion is and what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. But what's funny is, is they don't. And so they soon get pulled back into their culture, and uh, the Apostle Paul has to step in, and he has to correct some things that are happening in the church in Corinth. And that's what we're going to look at um, this morning. If you brought your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 11 uh, this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 34. I want to start with uh, verse 17 through 22, because it's, it's in those passages that Paul steps into the early church and sees what's going on and kind of sets up our time together um, this morning. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, you can also use our YouVersion Bible app, search Springbrook, or you go to our website, and we've got our outline of our time together uh, there as well. But beginning in verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as the church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order for those that are genuine among you to be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One person goes hungry, another one gets drunk. What are you doing? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No way. I will not. So Paul walks into the church in Corinth and he observes their communion time together. He observes what's happening in the body of Christ and he sees that it has lost its way. As we look at our passages this morning, there's going to be some warnings for us to make sure that we don't lose our way and a reminder for us to set our things and set our mind on the importance of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and to celebrate communion together. But let's open our time up together in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this day you've given us today. I just thank you for the lessons that we can learn um, from the Corinthian church. And so, uh, God, I just thank you for Paul's writings. I thank you for your word. I pray that it just be written on our hearts. Uh, God, I thank you for this place that we can come together this morning to worship you, uh, to celebrate and to uh, just to keep our eyes on you this morning. So, God, I pray that through our time together that we're encouraged, that we would each better understand our role as it relates to being connected uh, to the local church, the body of Christ, and that we would understand the fullness of what's been given to us and appreciate the fullness of that at communion this morning. And so, God, we just lift our time up to you this morning. Uh, I look forward to all that you have for us, and we commit it to you for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in our passage this morning, um, Paul is going to be tackling two significant issues that are facing this uh, early church. The first issue is their relationship with one another as it relates to the body of Christ. 
And so as they, their relationship with one another, it's broken. And there's divisions among them. In uh, verse 18 and 19, Paul wrote this. In the first place, when you come together as the church, I hear that there's divisions among you. And I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be, recogn- must be recognized. And so Paul at the onset here is identifying the fact that there's broken relationships and divisions within the context and the relationship with people in the church. You see, they come together on a routine basis, and not just like we do on Sunday morning, but Paul's observing the relationships that they have with one another on an ongoing basis. You go back to the book of Acts in chapter 2 when Peter gives his first sermon. It says 3,000 people believed. They got baptized. They made faith commitments that day. And it says that they met together in the temple courts. They met together in homes. They met together on a routine basis. And they broke bread together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There was a sense of awe. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. And so those early Christians just didn't get together on Sunday morning. They were getting together on a routine basis. And Paul steps back and looks at their relationships and says, you guys are really messed up. He said, there's divisions and factions among you. And and, and we've been looking at a lot of those divisions and factions leading up to today. Each week during our series, we've been looking at divisions and things that cause disunity in the church. We've been looking at that so that we can learn from their mistakes and not repeat them. And so Paul looks at this, and leading up to this entire time, he sees all these divisions, and uh, it says that it is ruining their church gatherings. Whenever they get together, it's a mess. In fact, he said it's so bad, it would be better if you just didn't get together. It says it is better for you that you, it's not better for you that you come together, but it's worse. It's terrible. When you guys get together, that's an abomination. And he says you'd be better off not meeting together. They're hurting one another. They're destroying the character of the church and their relationships with one another are broken. And so the first thing that Paul would identify as he looks at this church in Corinth is that their relationships with one another are broken. The second thing that he sees uh, is that their relationships with God are broken as well. And the relationship with God is broken from the perspective that their communion with the Lord is broken. They're not doing communion correctly. In fact, they're making a mess out of it. In verse 20, beginning of verse 20, it says this, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One person's going hungry and another person is getting drunk. What are you doing? And he goes on to say, he said, don't you have houses to eat in and you can eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I, con- shall I commend you in this? No way. I will not. You know, when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper here, he's not talking about the Lord's Supper like we're going to take communion um, together. When these early Christians got together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it looked a little differently than it does uh, for us now and when we celebrate just communion. See, the Lord's Supper goes way back. In fact, you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. The very first book of the Bible, we see God's plan start to roll out. We see creation. We see uh, Abraham in chapter 12. God sets apart uh, as God for God's chosen people. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants among you great. You're going to be a great nation. And so God sets the uh, people apart 
um, for his purposes. We see that in chapter 12. 200 years later, as you move forward in time, in chapter 45 of Genesis, um, we see Jacob and Esau. And so we see Jacob with his 12, uh, with his sons. We see the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, We see the population of the Israelites growing in just over 200 years. We see Abraham becoming a great nation. The population of the Hebrews is just growing. And so Israelite is becoming more and more of an influence. A hundred years after that, we move into the book of Exodus. And through the series of these relationships with with the Israelites and these pharaohs, at some point over time, the pharaohs, the relationship with the Israelites starts to break down. And so, and their numbers are so big that there's fear. And so one of the pharaohs said, look how big these numbers are. We need to oppress them before they rise up against us. And all of the Hebrews, all the Israelites go into slavery. And so that happens right at the very beginning of uh, the book of uh, Exodus, which is where we also see Moses being born. And so Moses is also born. Moses is going to be the one that God uses um, to free his people from slavery. hundred years um, the Israelites would be in slavery before Moses would uh, be raised up to free them. And they would not be freed easily. It's going to be a lot of work getting the, the Israelites freed. In fact, Moses, as you read through his life, goes through many trials uh, as he grows up uh, into that position that God has for him. Um, but at the point that he starts to work with getting the Israelites freed, he starts going into Pharaoh and he says, you need to free my people. And Pharaoh says, no. And so Moses and Pharaoh are going back and forth on getting these Israelites freed up. In fact, ten times Moses would go back to Pharaoh saying, free my people. And Pharaoh would say, no. This goes on ten times. And, and each time that this happens, there's a plague that comes to bear um, so that God can work through releasing his people so that God can be shown as faithful so that people will trust him. And so each time Moses goes in to say, free my people, Pharaoh says, no, there's a plague. And each time that that happens, the plague gets worse and worse and worse. Every time that there's a plague that happens, the next one that comes up is going to be more severe until the point that we get to the last plague, which is where the firstborn children are going to be killed. They're going to die. And so that's the last plague that we're faced with as we move into Exodus. And in order for that last plague, in order for God's people to be um, spared from that, um, they are told to get a, a sacrificial lamb, a lamb without blemish. They're to kill it, and they're to eat it that evening. And then they're to put their blood from the lamb over the, the post of their front door. And then when death comes through, it will go over, it will pass over that house. And so in that last plague, right before the Israelites get to go free, we see death passing over the home of these Israelites because of the blood that has been placed on their front doors. And so the death passes over. Um, Pharaoh decides, okay, you guys can go, and their people are free. And so the Jews, even today, still celebrate the Passover. A Passover meal is something that someone of the Jewish faith, these early Israelites, they celebrated this Passover They celebrated their freedom. They celebrate it every single year. And so they have an annual celebration of feasts. It's called the Passover meal where they remember all that God has done, where he delivered them from slavery and passed over their house, saving them. And so a Passover celebration for the Israelites is kind of like maybe our 4th of July celebration in the United States. We've been an independent nation. And so what happens on 4th of July? We all get together and we have a 
barbecue. And we put on some steaks. We, we don't think about where it came from. And we have a great time, right? We have a party and we celebrate Independence Day. Well, we do that as a nation every year. We celebrate Fourth of July every single year. Well, that's what the Israelites were doing with Passover. It was an opportunity for them to come together to have a meal to celebrate their freedom and the fact that God had passed over them. And that's what, kind of what we're going to be doing with our Springbrook picnic in two weeks. We're having, a, we're having a Springbrook annual celebration. It's an opportunity for us to look back and to celebrate 23 years of God's faithfulness to this ministry. And so everybody brings a meal together. We, have a, uh, we, have, we all share our food, and so we're cooking out, and we have a great time celebrating uh, our church picnic, the 23 years of God's faithfulness. And so what you see these Israelites doing is not uncommon. We do that today. Um, but that Passover celebration is an important meal where they get together to celebrate um, God releasing them and, uh, and sparing them from death. It's the Passover meal that Jesus has come together to eat with his disciples when we get communion. And so Jesus has come together with all the other Jewish people of the Jewish faith, and they're celebrating this meal together. And so they come together to eat this meal, and then at the end of that meal, Jesus will lift up the bread and he'd break it. He said, this is my body given for you. Whenever you eat it, eat it in remembrance of me. And then he'd lift up the cup. And he said, this cup is reflective of my blood that's going to be shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you eat it, eat it in remembrance of me. And so what Jesus does is during this Passover meal, at the very end of it, he claims that meal for himself. And so he is equating himself to the Passover lamb that's going to be killed, you know, so that the Hebrews can be saved. The blood that is spilt is the same blood that was reflective of the blood that was spilt for the lamb where death passes over them. And so Jesus takes that Passover meal and he claims it for himself. And we get the Lord's Supper from that. So he took the Passover meal, claimed it for himself, and now we have what's called the Lord's Supper. It's an opportunity for people to come together and to eat together to celebrate who they are in Christ. And communion is the very tail end of that message or the very tail end of that meal where he comes together and he lifts up that bread and he lifts up that cup. So we have a Passover meal that turns into the Lord's Supper. It's really what we're calling communion. It's what we celebrate at the end. And that's what we celebrate together every month. We celebrate communion. It's an opportunity for us to step back and reflect on the forgiveness that is ours because of who we are in Christ. It's an opportunity to celebrate the hope that we have because of who we are in Christ. And so we celebrate communion on a monthly basis to remember and to reflect on who we are in Christ and what was accomplished for us at the cross. Just like the blood of the Lamb saved the Israelites, the blood of Jesus saves us today. It takes away our sin and uh, saves us. And so that's what communion is all about. And that's what the Corinthian church should have been doing. But they completely messed it up. That's not what they were doing. And so when Paul walks in and he sees the mess, he confronts them on it. You know, these people have come together for their meal, and they are, one group is just pigging out. It'd be like if I showed up at the Springbrook picnic next week, and I had, or two weeks, and I showed up with my five buckets of chicken. And I'm just sitting there eating my chicken, and somebody down at the end of the table doesn't have any food. I'm just sitting there eating while you guys are going hungry. That's what's going on in this Corinthian church. And so Paul looks in, he goes, you guys are down here eating, and you're not even sharing with people that don't have any food with them. You know, some people didn't have food to bring. And, and so we've got this group come together to celebrate this Lord's Supper together. And there's divisions among them. You've got one group that's down there just picking out. They're not sharing with those that are hungry. And in fact, some people came to the party. And the party had already started before they got there. And they came drunk. And that's what Paul walks into. 
So Paul walks into their Lord's Supper, and he looks at what they're celebrating. He said, you guys, you want me to commend you for getting together for the Lord's Supper? There is no way. It would be better if you guys just didn't meet. You guys are making a debacle out of the Lord's Supper. And so Paul will correct them in our passages that we're going to look at this morning. And what he's going to do is he's going to help them to understand what does it mean to celebrate the Lord's Supper together correctly. And then he's going to talk briefly about what it means to be in relationship um, with one another. Paul's going to correct them in their understanding of what communion is. And he's going to clarify it. And he's going to give them three perspectives that they should have in their minds when they celebrate communion together. And each one of these perspectives will guide us today to help us to understand and not lose sight of what communion is. We find those in the next set of passages in in chapter 11 and verses 23 through uh, 32. And I want to read those for you as well. So Paul comes in and he sees this mess. Beginning in verse 23, he says this, What I received from the Lord, I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, he said this, This is the cup of a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and then so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so Paul has stepped into this church, and he's observed their um, gathering together as the body of Christ. They've observed their communion together. And he says, look, you're not doing it right. I want to give you three perspectives that you need to have on what communion is all about. And the first perspective that we need to have is this. When we approach communion, it's an opportunity for us to look back and to remember what Christ has done for us. That's what Paul is talking about in verses 24 and 25 when he said this. He said, Jesus said this, this is my body which was given for you. Whenever you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Well, what did Jesus do for you? You know, this is my body, which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is a cup of a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Jesus, when he claimed the Lord's Supper for himself and gave us the ordinance of communion, had some things that were pretty specific uh, in mind. When we take communion, we need to remember what they represent. We need to look back and remember what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. We need to think about the process. We're not just eating a nice, neat little chicken nugget. We need to step back and we need to think about what did Christ accomplish for me in our behalf. That broken bread represents his body, his crucifixion, his death on the cross. His body wasn't broken. In fact, the Bible says, according to prophecy, none of his bones were broken. But he was broken in a sense that his entire life was given on our behalf. Jesus Christ died for us. And we need to step back and we need to remember and reflect on the blessing that that is. That is good news that we do not have to endure that when we stand before God. Jesus Christ, through his death and through his resurrection, um, promises us 
uh, new life. And so that's what's been accomplished for us. This body, when we take together the bread, we are remembering what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And we're thinking about the process for that, and we're showing gratitude for that. The cup is a cup of of a new covenant. It's the forgiveness that is now ours because of who we are in Christ. No longer are we sacrificing animals. No longer do we have to try to please God. We can go straight straight to our relationship with our Heavenly Father through Christ because of this new covenant that has been established for us when Christ died on the cross for our sins and shed his blood. His blood is reflective of the forgiveness that we have because of who we are in Christ. You see, it's not the teachings of Jesus that save sinners. It's not his teaching. He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just a good guy. It is his death that saves us. It is through his death on the cross that we have the assurance of salvation. And so it's important that we stop and we reflect on that and give thanks for that. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, it says, We are like sheep. We've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But it says, But the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Jesus, the iniquity of us all. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might be righteous before God. In 1 Peter um, chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins that, that through his body, through his death on the cross, so that we might be able to have our sins forgiven and live in righteousness by the wounds that, by his wounds we have been healed. And so as you read through Scripture, everything points to Jesus being the reason that we can come before a Heavenly Father that loves us. And so when we are partaking of communion, we are reflecting back on that reality. That's an important perspective, that we remember the death of Jesus, not just as a historical reality, because that's true, but we remember that through faith we have been united with him. You know, this is an opportunity for us to look back and to give thanks and remember when we were called into a relationship with Christ. You see, if you don't have a relationship with Christ this morning, then communion is not going to make sense. You don't have anything to remember or anything to look back on. And so whenever we take communion, it's an opportunity for us to think back of when we first came to understand our need for a relationship with Christ. That's what the communion is all about. It's remembering what God has done. It's being thankful for the forgiveness that we have because of who we are in Christ. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ this morning or you can't remember uh, if you've made a faith commitment or you have any questions about that at all, I am so glad that you are here. We want to help you to understand how to have a relationship with Christ. That's one of the reasons that we exist is to help people to understand who God is and how to have a relationship with him. But if you have a relationship with Christ this morning, then when you celebrate communion, you're remembering when you made your faith commitment. You're giving thanks for the fact that God in his good and perfect plan saw fit to call you into a relationship with himself. Not everybody has a relationship with him. And and so we come together and we give thanks to God for calling us into a relationship with himself, to give us the, the assurance that we have the forgiveness of sins. And that's what we're remembering. And we need to stop and we need to reflect back on that. We need to give thanks for that. If you have questions about a faith commitment or if you have any questions about what that looks like, um, on your welcome slip um, that Rebecca told you about this morning, on the very back there's a little place that says, I, I want to know more about how to have a relationship with Christ. That's the most important decision that you're going to make. That's a decision that gets made before we come together to partake of communion. It's critical that we understand how to have a relationship with Jesus. That's what we're remembering. 
know, Romans 10.9 says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that, uh, that he was raised from the grave, we will be saved. And if you've done that, you've had an opportunity to do that, when you come together for communion, it's an opportunity for you to give thanks and to celebrate um, that decision. And so we need to make sure that our perspective on communion first looks back and remembers what we have in Christ. The second perspective that Paul will show us is that we should look forward in faith to the return of Jesus Christ. We need to be looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 26. In verse 26, um, Paul wrote this. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're proclaiming the Lord's death. God God has sent his son. He died on the cross for our sins. We're proclaiming that. But we're also proclaiming his death, what? Until he comes. You see, we remember that Jesus not only died for us, but where is his body? It's in heaven. He rose from the grave. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And you know what? He will return. And so when we partake of communion together, we're proclaiming his death until he comes. In communion, we are proclaiming the fact that our faith and our hope lies in the fact that he is going to return. That's an important part of our faith. It's one of the important perspectives that we need to have when we're celebrating communion. We're celebrating communion together temporarily until he comes. And then there's going to be a great feast in heaven when we're all gathered together and we all get to eat together. And so we're anticipating Christ's return. In John 14, when Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to be leaving them, they all freak out. John 14, chapter 1, it says their hearts are troubled. And Jesus looks down and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. My Father's house has many rooms. I'm going to go there and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back and take you with me to be where I am. Isn't that exciting to think about? There is a place in heaven right now with your name on it, with my name on it. You know, there's many rooms. Jesus has prepared a place in heaven. It's like there's a big hotel room up there, and room number 2,995,000 is my room number. There's a place for me that's got my name on it in heaven. Jesus has gone before me and prepared a place for me. And when he comes back, he's going to get me, and he's going to take me up there to be with him in that place. That's exciting. That's exciting. You know, we, our days are numbered on this earth. We're, we're going to be here 70, 80, maybe 90, 100 years. I don't know how long you plan on living. I hope to live a long time. But I know that this life is temporary, and I know where I'm going when I die. Because that's what the Bible tells me. That's an assurance I have because of what Scripture tells me. And when I come together to celebrate communion, I remember what Christ accomplished for me on the cross. I give thanks for it, and then I celebrate, and I look forward in faith to the fact that Christ is going to return. That's one of the things that we do when we come together to participate in communion. So we're celebrating his death, but we're also looking forward in faith, remembering that Jesus is going to come back and bring us to be with him. That is something exciting that we can look forward to. After looking back on Jesus' death and what it means to me, after looking forward in faith to the fact that he is going to return and what it means to me and for me, we also need to take time to look inward and to reflect on our own lives. 
And that's the third perspective that we learn from Paul about communion. We should look inward and we need to reflect on our own lives. Let's read verses uh, 27 through 31 together. He says this in the first two verses. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat the bread and drink the cup. And so that's the essence of Paul's command to examine ourselves before we do communion. In the subsequent verses, he would go on to say this, that whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why so many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. If we have judged ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the rest of the world. And so what Paul's saying is, is we're to examine ourselves, we're to evaluate our own hearts and our own lives, and we're not to do it based on our own standards. Because if I judge myself according to what I think is right or wrong, I'm going to miss the mark because my standard is not necessarily perfection. When I'm evaluating my own life and I think about my life, I think, well, I'm not as bad as him. I could be better. I wish I was more like him. We have a tendency to compare ourselves to other people when we're evaluating our own lives. We evaluate ourselves based on our own standards. We are going to be condemned. But Scripture says that if we examine ourselves according to God's word, to his standard of perfection and in his word, that's where we're going to be disciplined. You see, I don't evaluate my life based on what I think is right or wrong. I have to evaluate my life based on God's standard and God's word. And there's where I find discipline. You know, as I read God's word, it corrects my life. It challenges me. I grow spiritually. I am changed. I'm constantly being molded into the likeness of Christ. The Christian walk is one of transformation. Therefore, let your minds be renewed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you test and approve what God's good and perfect, pleasing will is. So we need to allow God's word to transform us. And so when we get together to take communion, it's an opportunity for us to step back and to examine our lives according to God's standards. That's where we find the ability to experience life change. And if we try to do things our own way, like they were doing in the Corinthian church, that's why they were experiencing all the divisions and the illness and even death. I mean, they were comparing themselves to their own standard, and it was leading to problems. We are to evaluate ourselves on God's standards, on his words. And as I reflect on myself, and I think, if I'm reflecting on myself, and I'm thinking, I'm really a good person. You know, I, I did pretty good last week. Maybe I should be a better parent, or I should probably try to be a better, you know, son or daughter or student employee. If that's what we think when we're participating in community and reflecting, then we have missed the mark. You know, the Bible says that we have all sinned. Oh, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. First John says that if we claim to be without sin, we're liars. And so we need to evaluate our lives based on God's standards. We need to evaluate ourselves. We need to confess our sin before the Lord. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And Paul says that we should not participate in communion in an unworthy manner. We need to confess our sins. It is far better to be disciplined by God so that he can help us turn from our sin rather than to be condemned like the rest of the world is going to be condemned. And so when we come together, we're going to take communion in just a moment. And I want to encourage you during these, uh, this communion time to spend some time thinking on these three different perspectives. So 
the worship team is going to come out now. And uh, we're going to uh, celebrate communion together. And um, I want to encourage you during these next few moments to take some time to reflect on, look back, and reflect on who you are in Christ. Take some time to look forward and to give thanks of where your hope lies. Then take some time to reflect inwardly and to think about where you have opportunities for growth and to confess sin. And so that's what our communion time is going to be all about. So those three different perspectives are what we want to bring to our communion time together. And so our communion team is going to come forward, and we're going to invite you to celebrate open communion this morning. So it's an opportunity for you to come up as God leads to just to participate in communion. We have some bread uh, on the left side, of the, on the right side of the table, and we have a cup for you on the, uh, on the left side. And so we want to invite you in the style of a Lord's Supper to take communion at the table. And so if you want to, you can come up, you can take a piece of bread, you can take a cup with you, take communion, and then you can leave the cup on uh, the tray that's up here at the table. Or if you want to, and you want to take some time to just to pray, you can take communion back to your seat, and then you can just throw your cup away on the way out. Um, but we're going to invite you to take the next few minutes just to take your time to enjoy uh, open communion. We do have some gluten-free um, bread at this left table, so we want everybody to be able to participate in communion. So if you have a gluten allergy, we've got some gluten-free. If you're unable to get out from your chair, uh, members of our communion team will be aligned on the side. You can just raise your hand, and they will bring communion to you. Let's just spend these next few moments reflecting on uh, gratitude for what Christ has accomplished for us, giving thanks for the hope that we have in Christ's return, and examine ourselves as we uh, confess any sin and just try to get right uh, before God. So just take your time with communion. Uh, You're invited to come up at any point during the song, and then we're all going to come back together uh, in just a little bit. So Paul had identified the fact that the relationship with God was broken in a sense that their communion with God was broken as well. And so he gave us three perspectives that we're to have to make sure that we don't lose sight of what communion is all about. We need to make sure that we look back and give thanks and that we're secure in who we are in Christ. Then we look forward with hope and eager anticipation to the Christ's second coming. And then we examine ourselves on a routine basis as we grow in our faith and are conformed more and more to the image of Christ each and every day. That was the second problem that Paul had identified. The first problem that he identified at the beginning of the passage, although he did not give us as much information about it, was the problem that they had with one another. The relationships with one another were broken as well. And that's what he was talking about in verse 33 and 34. When he opened up the passage, he talked about there's divisions among you and there's factions among you and your relationships are being broken. And then in the midst of that, he sandwiches the discussion around communion. But then he comes back to the problems that they have amongst themselves. And he says this, when you come together to eat, you should wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when he comes together, it will not be for judgment. So if you're really hungry, I don't know about you, sometimes when we go out to eat, I haven't eaten all day, and I go out to lunch with somebody, you know how you're supposed to wait until everybody has their food before you start eating? Well, sometimes I kind of sneak a little bit because I'm, I'm like starved. It's like, well, where are all these people? I'm supposed to, am I supposed to, am I supposed to wait? I'm supposed to eat? You know, we're, we should wait. And so if you're really hungry, eat something before you get there so you don't make a pig of yourself later, right? And so that's what he's talking about. If you're really hungry, you know, eat when, before, when you're at home. So when you come together, people won't judge you. You will not be judged. And then he says about the other things, I'm going to give you directions when I come later. I wish they had the directions for the other things. But he doesn't come back on the end of this letter and give us any other things. But I would imagine it's the rest of Paul's writings. 
And so as you look through the divisions that we're going to be looking at through this series, there's a lot of things that Paul speaks into with regard to the divisions in the church. But the point that he makes right there at the beginning of verse 33 is, is that we need to wait for one another. In other words, we need to put our needs behind the needs of other people. We need to put the needs of other people in front of us. And so we need to think of others more highly than ourselves. We need to think of other people. We need to serve other people. And he's talking about in the body of Christ, these divisions are among you because everybody's looking out for their own best interest. There's nobody listening to one another. There's nobody putting anybody else's needs above the other. Everybody's trying to fight for who's going to be first. And we should work to reduce, if not completely eliminate, any divisions that we have within our church. And we do that by putting others first. I do that by putting others first. When we all start fighting and claiming for our rights and we make other people go second, that's where the divisions come from. We need to listen. We need to serve other people. In fact, in Matthew, uh, in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 20, verse 28, it says that Jesus came to what? To serve, not to be served. And so Jesus is a model servant for us in a sense that we need to be looking out for the interest of other people. What Paul is talking about is we need to be aware of the problems and the concerns of other people and do something to meet them. Put others ahead of ourselves. And if we need to wait, then so be it. We need to wait. You know, we have got some great servant leaders at Springbrook. I'm so proud of, you know, call Springbrook Church my home. It is so exciting when you get around people that want to serve and glorify the Lord. That's why I think one of the, we, have, we don't have that many divisions. There's not a lot of divisions in Springbrook. We listen to one another. And I think it's because we are focused on who we are in Christ and because we are servant leaders. We wait on one another. We put others first. I think God honors that and blesses that. You know, we've got some great small groups at Springbrook. Small groups are a microcosm of the church where they get together to study God's word, where they encourage one another, where they pray for one another, where they equip one another and they serve together. Small groups are an integral part of our family life at Springbrook. And we've got over 20 small groups that people can jump into right now. And as we get ready to head into this next series, I'd encourage you, if you've never been involved in a small group, if you're not in a small group right now, look for an opportunity to get connected to a small group because it's in those contexts where you're able to serve together what we find unity. You know, if you've been at Springbrook for a while and you've never had an opportunity to go through our starting point workshop, we have one coming up at the last Sunday of uh, September. I think it's September 29th. It's the last Sunday of September and the first Sunday of October. It's a great opportunity for you to hear what it means to be a part of this local body of Christ. Uh, we'll talk about our vision, our mission, our values, and how we can help you um, get connected and grow spiritually. It's a great way to avoid the divisions in the church by being united in who God's called us to be together. And we've got people that serve using their spiritual gifts. You know, God says you've been given a spiritual gift not for yourself, but for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. And so when we're using our spiritual gifts to serve other people, that unites us and strengthens our church. I think God has gone before us in some of the most amazing ways, and I see unity in this body of Christ that is so encouraging. It's because we are living out those principles. We're focused on who Christ is, and we're focused on being um, servant leaders. So I pray, you know, for our time this morning that you've been encouraged. I hope that you have a better understanding of what communion is. I'm looking forward to what God has got for us as we step out individually as Christ followers and together as the local body of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you for this day you've given us today, and I thank you for this service, for this time we could come together to celebrate communion. 
and to be encouraged in who we are together. And uh, God, I just want to thank you uh, for this time. I just want to lift each of us up as we go into our weeks next week, um, that we would just be salt and light to the people in our community, that others would see Christ in us and want to be a part of what you're doing there. God, we just lift this day up to you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.